Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, with an episode that might surprise some of you that know me well, but also may not surprise you either. We are talking about art today, and longtime listeners of the show will know that I'm not the most knowledgeable person when it comes to the world of art, particularly modern art. And we've done a couple episodes in the past where people have tried to explain art to me, uh, including one of our guests today has come on to explain why modern art gets the praise that it does and why somebody like me, who is skeptical, needs to be brought around to it. And sometimes I could see the benefit of some of the pieces, but other times I'm left utterly confused as to what the value is. And most recently for me, this was a visit to the National Gallery here in Ottawa. There was a room and there was a piece of string that went from one corner of the room to the other corner of the room. And that was the art. And I was very confused. And then I read the description of it and uh, that didn't help. So I actually reached out to one of today's guests to try to explain what this was to me. And she was very excited about it, of course, as she always is about art. And that's what I love about great Sarah E.K. Smith, her just total love and passion for it. And that comes out in the project that she is currently working on. It's entitled From Remote Stars. This is a large group research project that explores our Buckminster Fuller and his speech that he gave in London, Ontario, looks into the idea of speculative future, modernism in the post-Second World War era, what, what was going on in the second half of the 20th century, and how that speech and how Fuller's influence really shaped the art scene in London. It's a really broad project that ties in both extensive archival research as well as artistic installations, uh, new pieces that have been commissioned. It's it's really a, a wonderful contribution, not only to the art history of London, but, but I think there's something here for everybody. And there's a couple different ways in which you can engage with it. There is an exhibition at Museum London, which is running right now. It opened March the 5th and is closing on May 15th, 2022. So you have just over a month. If you are in London or in Southwest Ontario, would encourage you to check it out at Museum London. It was actually supposed to open two years ago as part of Congress when it was scheduled to be held at Western, which of course did not happen. And uh, I really feel for everybody who's involved in that uh, because I know how much work they put into it leading into the spring of 2020, but so thrilled that it's open now. They have also released a podcast, which has three episodes available. It is the Remote Stars podcast, three-part miniseries that looks at the recording of our Buckminster Fuller when he was speaking in London in 1968 and the significance of that. It's a wonderful podcast. Certainly would encourage you to check it out. So that is what we were talking about today with the great Sarah E.K. Smith, who I've known for years. She's a wonderful art historian. Does great work both in researching writing, but also her eye for art and putting things together is quite remarkable and, and something that I don't know if I'm envious of it because I don't know if I would want to do it, but I, I'm I'm always impressed uh, whenever she explains things to me. It's, it's really quite a skill. 
And we were joined by Sarah's colleague, Kirsty Robertson, who actually found this recording. Uh, the speech that our Buckminster Fuller gave in London had this lore in the city, as Kirsty will talk about on the show. And she came across it, uh, not searching for it. She just found it in an archival collection, and that launched really this this project. Uh, and Kirsty, when we recorded this, was over in Paris doing some work there. So you might hear a siren or two uh, in the background based off of just where she was at the time. You get that nice Parisian ambiance. But it was such a thrill to meet Kirsty, get a chance to talk with her and with Sarah. Really, really did enjoy this. And, and as someone who is skeptical to occasionally unenthused at the very least confused about a lot of modern art i got a lot out of this chat uh, and i've listened to a couple of the episodes of the podcast and i have very much enjoyed it and uh, i've seen pictures of the exhibition i know it's not the same as going uh, but but there is value there for for even someone like me uh, i i can see the value in it and i think if you have an interest in art you will absolutely love it and if you don't have an interest in art i think you'll learn something from this. So without any further ado, let's get right into my chat with Sarah E.K. Smith and Kirsty Robertson. All right, let's welcome in our guests today uh, from London, Ontario, our friend Sarah E.K. Smith. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. Glad to be here. Uh, happy to have you and also happy to have from Paris, uh, Kirsty Robertson, a transatlantic podcast. Uh, Kirsty, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Terrific. Uh, peek behind the curtain, uh, take three or four. So let's uh, get right into it. Talking about the project, I, I mentioned it in the intro from Remote Stars, a multi-year project, Sarah, that uh, I've been hearing about from you for a while. So let's just get into a little bit of the backstory of the project, how it all came together and how it came to be such a multi-layered product that, that you've made available here for the public to engage with a lot of the great work that's being done. Yeah, you know, it has been a while. I think uh, when I was looking back, Kirsty and I started working on this together in 2017. And that was uh, after she made a find in the archive of the Art Gallery of Ontario. So it's been a long time coming together and the exhibition is now up and uh, open to the public in 2022. So that's quite the journey. In terms of the projects, kind of just to give your listeners a sense of what it is, it really centers on this recording that was made by artist Greg Kerno, uh, and it's a recording of our Buckminster Fuller in London, Ontario, in 1968. So the project is a chance for Kirsty and I to examine this recording and its context, to think a bit about uh, that moment, but also to think about or think with some of the ideas Fuller raises in the recording and that he espoused ideas about the future, about climate change, about the planet. And so we found that a lot of the themes and ideas are really resonant in today's moment as much as they were in 1968. And Kirsty, for you, is, is individual who was going through the archives, you find this, what is it for you going from that moment of finding it? What was that reaction like for you? Because I think a lot of people will have heard of our Buckminster Fuller, but people who are like me will have heard of him, but not really know a lot about him. It would just be that, oh, I know that name. So what is finding this or what was finding this like for you? And, and how did you figure out the significance of it and that it was something that you wanted to pursue in greater depth? So I moved to London in 2007, I think, and almost from the moment I arrived, it was one of the first things 
that I was told that Buckminster Fuller had come to town in 1968 and he had commented on how London was the perfect distance from Detroit and Toronto and somehow managed to be this perfect little place between the two big cities. So I heard that as soon as I arrived, but there didn't seem to be any evidence for it. And I looked into Buckminster Fuller a bit And he was such a character, like he was such a strong persona in the mid 60s. He was really a celebrity and he was known, well, specifically for the um, geodesic dome that he designed in Montreal for Expo 67 that really shot him to fame. But he was also known as this thinker who could just bring in ideas from across the sciences and art and systems analysis and thinking about outer space and chemicals and the environment. He just had such a vast expanse of knowledge that he was able to stitch together into these kind of celebrity talks. So it always struck me as interesting that he had come to London, but there didn't seem to be any record of that that I could find easily. And then I was at the AGO searching something totally different about the artist Greg Kernow, who had been an important member of the London arts community, and um, Judith Roger, who's a, a kind of arts person in London. She was the one who put together the archive of Kernow's work, and it's very, very detailed, like extremely detailed. And she had written in this finding guide that there was a recording of Buckminster Fuller by Greg Kernow. So that was like, it was a great moment. It felt so good to find this. And I couldn't listen to it right away because it was on magnetic tape. So they had to digitize it and it took quite a long time. And then like Sarah can talk about this too, the recording's very hard to hear. So even once I had, you know, made the provocative archival discovery, it was still quite some time before we were able to dig into what was actually in that recording. Yeah, as somebody who's worked on the history of radio and has listened to big reel-to-reel tapes from the 1930s, it's... It can be hard sometimes to figure out what all the scratchy sounds are actually saying. So what is on this recording? Obviously a big name. So there's tons of stuff that he would have left uh, behind uh, for, from his life and from his career. So, so what's on here and what makes it really unique other than the fact that it's in London? I think one of the first things you'd notice in listening to the recording is, I guess you're, you're thinking about the atmosphere in which it was recorded. The recording it, he's is takes place at um, this venue in London called the Hunt Club, uh, which was quite well-to-do. And Fuller is talking, he's essentially giving a dinner lecture. So what you hear is not just Fuller speaking, but you're hearing noises from the table at which Greg Kernow was sitting. So you're hearing clinking of cutlery, you're hearing like coughing and shuffling and occasional asides amongst people who are closer to the recording device. So it's really so much more than the recording you might get of a lecture because you're kind of immediately immersed into this moment. And Kirsty, did you find that as well, that it's, it's not necessarily just the, the voice of Buckminster Fuller, but sort of that ambiance, the total aural sensation that the recording provides? The ambiance is so important. There's just so much coughing. And <laughs> partly because um, like we think that everyone was smoking at this venue as they were listening to the talk. So 
either there was a bad cold going around or they were coughing. But either way, when the show finally opened after having been postponed, you know, several times because of the pandemic, the coughing read a little differently, but was also kind of an oral insight into another era. So I love the oral ambience of it. I think it's something that Kerno, who was like a technology early adopter, so he was, as far as we know, the tape recorder that he had had only just been invented. And he was trying to make use of this new technology to record someone who was very into new technologies himself. So there was a little bit of circularity there. So it's the content where Fuller is talking about his ideas, but he also does mention London specifically several times. And then also this kind of wonderful moment in London of people having a good time, coughing a lot, smoking their cigarettes, and just listening to this guy that they were really interested in everything he had to say. There's this moment at the end of the tape, too, where Kerno like, approaches, you know, at the end of the lecture, people kind of go up to the speaker, they want, they have some questions, they want to connect. Uh, there's this moment where they go have a drink at the end. So it, it it's, it's really kind of magical. Take me from audio recording found in the archives, finally digitized, the excitement of that to next steps, because there's lots of stuff that people have found over the years. I'm sure every historian has the story of, oh, I found this really cool thing. And then they don't know what to do with it. Like it doesn't fit into the main project. Maybe it was a rabbit hole when they're in the archives one day. So how do we go from this really cool thing to a a bigger project? So Kirsty, maybe we'll start with you because what was your first step then of of we found this and how did you kind of come up with an idea to do something bigger with it? Yeah, I mean, that's the central question, not just of the exhibition, but of curating in general. Like you might move out from an object into telling a story, into creating something that is like visual material for people to understand a historical topic or a question or whatever you want to have in that curatorial undertaking. So in this case, I loved the recording as a kind of artifact, but it was also very clear that Fuller had a concept of the world that was quite narrow, even as he felt that it was universal. And I really wanted to think about how other people who were not included in his vision of the world were now thinking about some of the questions that have been of interest to him 50 years earlier. So what is the future going to look like? What kinds of paths can we have to a more equitable future? And it just happens that a lot of contemporary artists are thinking about those kinds of questions. And often they're from Indigenous perspectives or the perspectives of Black futurists. And uh, they're not nearly as narrow as the world that Fuller, uh, or they don't, they have a much wider and more expansive understanding of what futures could be than Fuller did in that moment in 1968. And Sarah, for you then, how do you come into it? And, and what is your perspective when you hear this and the broader ideas of, of looking at this project? Yeah, you know, Kirsty and I have had the opportunity to collaborate before, and we both independently curated projects. And I think for this, I was excited for the the possibility of 
the possibility of engaging in contemporary art in concert with engaging with historical research. Uh, so for me, that was um, all the ideas that Kirsty's said previously, of course, kind of frame that conversation that we then undertook. Uh, but I think I was really excited uh, about this opportunity to also share share this research. And we really have been conceiving of this as a, a research exhibition, right, where we've also, just to give you a sense of what's in the show, we've uh, foregrounded some of the research materials that are historical. Um, so there's ephemera uh, in, in the exhibition, as well as um, replicas of documents and newspaper articles we found, as well as more contemporary research materials um, that we've engaged with, everything from, um, you know, facsimile projects and fiction novels to to a lot of contemporary artwork. I'm curious to, to, to think about not only the, the stuff that you're working with, but the, and people are going to get mad at me, but the historiography of it. Uh, I'm so sorry, everybody who's listening. But I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this time that, that you're looking at and based what I know, at least uh, about Buckminster Fuller, is that this seemed to be a time where a lot of people were looking towards the the future and what is it going to mean? Like there was like, if you look at popular TV shows and movies uh, of the era, like a lot of stuff about outer space and the unknown and, and what's coming next. And hell, you look at Walt Disney's career and he creates a theme park, essentially like what's the future going to be? So, you know, where does Fuller and therefore a lot of the stuff that you're researching as part of this this project fit in broadly with that 1960s era, that fascination with the future? I think for us, it was less about Fuller. We understood that Fuller's moment in the 60s, as Kirsty noted, he's this celebrity. Expo 67 in Montreal is this big moment for him in his recognition. And so I think what we were thinking of more was also locally what's happening in London in the 60s. This is a big moment for London artists, regionalism. But some of the more interesting stuff is to consider the struggles that London artists were experiencing in this moment. There was issues around development of the core, London's urban core, and artists were struggling and losing studio spaces. And that was a, a topic on which they tried to engage Fuller when he came to the city. They weren't necessarily successful, but um, I would kind of invert that question in terms of relating Fuller to the larger context of the 60s, to seeing how he actually fit within what was happening in London. And I also think Fuller was this really interesting persona because he had been involved in the military like he had been like quite a conservative figure in some ways and then he was adopted by the counterculture so in some ways the work that he was doing at that time is a bit of a cross-section of many of the things that were going on in the United States at least even though he had a bit of a global reputation but he did lots of things that might have been a little bit unexpected like he met frequently with the young lords who were assumed to be uh, like kind of a gang, but had done like a lot of social work in New York City and somewhere else, I want to say somewhere in Pennsylvania, maybe Philadelphia, but I'm not totally sure. So he would meet with them and he was doing things that were in some ways much broader than might have been thought, but at the same time, he always would sort of bring it back to the singular perspective, which was his own perspective, which he then universalized. 
So he was definitely, I would say, a part of many of the things that were going on in the United States in the 60s. But then in the show, we really brought it down to this meeting of a small city that was hitting above its weight at the time, and then a celebrity thinker coming to the city in that moment. Is that kind of validation for the city in the moment? then is that why because you said at the start that this is something that you had heard about when you moved to london that he had come and is this sort of a a mid-sized city kind of in the shadow of toronto as toronto really is exploding in the post-second world war period that the the people in london feel validated by this and is that something that comes across in the subsequent material after he's there Yes, um, but I would definitely say that the artists like Greg Curnow and Jack Chambers and a number of others did not consider themselves to be secondary to Toronto at that time. They really thought, and many people agreed, including Pierre Tiberge, who was curator at the National Gallery, that London was where things were happening in this moment. And it was kind of an equivalent to Vancouver or Montreal or Toronto in terms of the artistic action that was taking place. And maybe it didn't last for that long, but certainly Fuller's visit was a part of a moment that saw London artists being shown at the National Gallery and that saw London artists being selected to go to like international biennales and London artists sort of making a splash nationally and internationally. Uh, It's a moment that one of the artists in the show, Jason McLean, looks back on and wonders if London is sort of constantly reliving that moment, actually, and can never sort of break from it. So maybe our show tries to break from it while also centering its importance. Right, like the the glory days of the city, and this is sort of this pinnacle moment that yeah, it can be, and it can be hard for a city or a person or a community to move past those big moments, and it's it's great to hold on to them and celebrate them, but at some point you also have to be forward looking and decide of this was cool and let's let's move on. And it's curious to me to think about this, and and maybe Sarah, you could talk to this that that if the exhibition is trying to do that. How do you do that while also this is the focus of it, right? That the, the, the sort of the trigger moment of the whole project is the recording and yet trying to maybe break free from that at the same time. That, that feels to me like a tension within the exhibit. Is that something that I'm sure you were conscious of, but how does that play out for potentially a visitor coming to see it? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that was that's something we talked about a lot. We, we wanted to think with and look past and work with, but not necessarily kind of center Fuller and his talk and his ideas in the show. So it was this constant tension between trying to, we have the recording actually um, audible in the space. um, And we have some of those uh, ephemera and artifacts. So people get and understand that context of Fuller's visit. But at the same time, we didn't want that to dominate the exhibition or the visitor's experience. So one way in which we did that, I think if we think just uh, about the experience of being in the show is that when you walk in, you're immediately kind of oriented to the past or the historical through a large uh, black and white, that's a a blow up image, quite large, um, like over life size of Fuller in London in the midst of giving a lecture. He's holding these really interesting uh, structures. 
But then, you know, as soon as you get past the very start of the exhibition, you're immediately immersed in contemporary artworks that are um, advancing different ideas and questions. And it's a very different visual experience. So I think that was one way in which we tried to certainly tip the emphasis of the exhibition in terms of uh, the contemporary while still, you know, giving giving a nod to those those big moments in London regionalism and Fuller and his life. Now, as we've talked about many times, Sarah, and I, I sort of explained to you, uh, Kirsty, before we started to record, I am somebody who is somewhat skeptical about some art exhibits. And Sarah, the first time you were on the show, the whole point of it was to try to convince me about certain types of art uh, that they do, in fact, have value. So for anyone who might be coming to this, like, I, I'm sure that both of you, given what you do and the research you've done, I'm not the only person who has expressed some level of skepticism in some forms of art. So how do you create, maybe not just even this exhibit, but exhibits in general, and Kirstie, let's start with you, to attract not only the people who are already interested, because obviously they're going to come and they're going to enjoy uh, an exhibit and, and are going to be excited to see the, the pieces of art and the, the way it's laid out in the exhibit space, but for somebody maybe like me, who's more on the fence or who potentially is even skeptical about the value of some of the work that potentially we see when we go to art galleries, like how difficult is it to curate for people like that or, or do people like that or people like me come up in the discussions when you're thinking about how to create a space for people to come and, and look at the material that's available? I mean, I would definitely curate an exhibition differently at, you know, an artist-run center that is primarily going to be attended by people in the arts who have a really high-level understanding of different kinds of art. Museum London is a regional museum that attracts many different kinds of audiences, but it has a big material culture collection. It's concerned with the history of the region. It attracts a lot of school groups, um, you know, groups like seniors and, you know, newcomers to the city. So an exhibition at a place like Museum London, I think really has to center a narrative or a story that can be understood by multiple groups of people. So it's not, um, you know, an inside secret. So I think the thing that curating can do is it can make a space comfortable for lots of different people who might not necessarily feel comfortable with contemporary art. So how do you contextualize some of the works that might be a little bit more difficult in From Remote Stars, I actually feel like most of the works are very legible, like they're they're quite easy to understand. And we chose them to take a part in this storytelling. And the artists, or at least the artists who are um, still alive, were very much aware of the story that the exhibition was telling. So we probably chose a particular kind of artist. But what curating does is it has to decide how to create the meeting point between the artwork and the audience. And in the case of From Remote Stars, we had like, uh, so we have some works that are moving image. We have a lot of, I think, quite easy to understand labeling and didactics in the show. There's the recording that gives a, 
kind of oral quality to the exhibition space. There's lots of bright colors. Um, the works are spaced out, so it's not too crowded. And the space itself, I think, doesn't feel overwhelming, which was a purposeful decision. So I think those are some of the strategies we use, but overall, the kind of curating that I like to do and that I teach my students to do is basically how to get the artworks to tell a story to the visitor. Um, So they come away with something they can tell somebody else. You mentioned that they're spaced out. uh, And Sarah, maybe you could comment on, because it's come up before, the coffin and the recording plays differently uh, in 2022 than it did in 2017. So how much of just the reality of that? And Sarah, I'm curious about your thoughts broadly too on creating exhibitions, but how much the last two years has influenced potentially the way this is laid out as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I was going to mention just building off of Kirsty's comments is the fact that we also are cognizant that, you know, some people don't necessarily enter the museum or the gallery and may not attend the show. But one way we were able to install a work that I quite delighted by is uh, we have a video work, a two channel video work by an artist, Jessica Karuhanga, called Being Who You Are, There Is No Other. And this is back projected. So um, you probably haven't visited Museum London yet, Sean, but um, it's a really interesting building and it sits at the fork of the Deshkanzibi or the Thames River and at the back it has this large I'd say kind of community space which has tiered seating so you could use it as a theater for presentations I think they run a lot of public programs there it has two screens um, so we're able to back project so that you're able to see this contemporary artwork which you know could have easily been displayed within the gallery closed walls but uh, you can see it from the exterior of the museum uh, as you're walking around the outside uh, so I just think that's one way in which we're trying to also give a nod to you know br- bridging the, the museum's walls in terms of your question about the impact of the pandemic, I mean, my goodness, so this show was supposed to open in 2020 uh, and the pandemic happened, um, of course, in the spring, just as this was about to launch. And so we faced a series of, of delays in the opening. Um, so it's it's been rescheduled more times than we could count. And we're just relieved and thrilled that it's now finally realized. But I think in terms of the impact that had on the exhibition itself is it it certainly impacted our ideas about the display because we're able to spend a lot of time I mean we were able to spend time rethinking where things were going to be displayed Uh, some works uh, we weren't able to you know receive the loan that we had coordinated for 2020 you know things have really shifted for a lot of museums Uh, so by the time 2022 came around that gave us an opportunity to commission a new work by an artist which was actually like a really a wonderful moment in the show we're really excited about and it gave us time to I think just sit with the material, uh, you know, to, to often, so often with projects, you know, you're trying to get things done for a deadline. But I think having that chance to be sure about what we wanted to do and to rethink the labels, to think up really carefully about all the placements, uh, that certainly I think was a really fruitful. If we have to look for a silver lining in the pandemic, that would be what I draw from it. Yeah, because I remember it was supposed to launch or you were going to have a launch party during Congress. Yes. Uh, 2020 Congress, uh, which was supposed to be at Western and, of course, was not uh, at Western. <laughs> so certainly lots of changes that go along with that. Now, another part of the project that we haven't really touched on yet is the podcast. 
I know that there are two other members of the team who uh, were instrumental in, in writing and producing the podcast, but how, how did it come to exist uh, as part of the project and what is its connection to the physical exhibition? How, how does everything kind of relate to each other? And is there even a potentially prescribed order in which people should consume these things? Like, is it better to listen to the show before seeing the exhibition or vice versa? Like, just, just how does it all kind of coordinate I think they parallel. Uh, like Sarah, you can also expand on this. So we had planned on having a symposium to launch the exhibition and had Shirk funding for a symposium. But then, of course, the pandemic came and we didn't want this funding to go to waste. So we talked to Accounts and Records, their podcast producing company, and they worked with us to do something that I think is really exciting. So Uh, It was hosted by Christina Battle, who's an artist who has a work in the show. And there are three episodes plus two interviews. And really because we started with this oral artifact of the recording, the podcast allowed us to explore it in a number of different ways. And each episode sort of took... The original recording is a starting point, but went off in a completely different direction. So it definitely adds another dimension to the show. And then it lasts as itself an artifact, which maybe a symposium wouldn't have. So it was it was also maybe a bit of a silver lining, although I have to say I was really excited about the symposium and that the exhibition was going to open as part of Congress and there was a lot of energy around it. And it was definitely hard to maintain that level of energy over two years of postponement. I think it was really exciting for us to collaborate on the podcast because, you know, in collaboration, I think Kirsty and I together would have cooked up a, a vision of the podcast, but working with accounts and records just kind of blew everything up in terms of scale and ideas. Um, and that was just so exciting to see. I think the, the podcast is another aspect that might bring in, Miss um, Sean, you were talking about audience earlier, and, you know, audiences who, who may not be so drawn to contemporary art or exhibitions may stumble upon this and find the podcast another way to engage with the research project. So I see I see it simply as kind of a research project about thinking through this recording that has these different facets of the exhibition um, of the of the podcast. So it's to me very much related. I think the idea of understanding them in parallel makes perfect sense and there would be no prescribed order uh, that one one would need to. And we're certainly hoping that people might engage with both. But the other thing about the pandemic and, and the reality of how things are right now, especially, you know, Congress isn't happening, bringing a lot of people into London is that I think people may know of the show or some of the research through the podcast uh, who might never get to see the exhibition. Yeah, that's an important detail, I think, that if you're not in London and you can't go to the show physically, then you do have an outlet to engage with the project. And one of the things, too, I'm curious to maybe get both your thoughts on is that so often, and I think this show is guilty of it, that we focus so much on a monograph as the end of a research project or as the the, the culmination of, of everything coming together. This project and so many others are examples of of things where 
you know, a, a singular monograph isn't really the, the necessarily the best way to tell the story or the best way to engage people in the story. So for anybody who's listening to this, who might be used to the monograph is like you do research, you write a book and then you move on to the next project. What, what are some of the benefits, do you think, not only as researchers, but for people who are interested in the research itself, what are some of the benefits of doing things that are non-traditional within a, a general academic historical framework of the exhibition, of a podcast, of, of other ways to disseminate research? Obviously, there's challenges, and, and certainly we can address the challenges as well, but just the benefits of doing it in a, in a different way. Like I, I just wonder how each of you would assess it after. I know this isn't the only time you've done something like this for both of you in your careers, but now having gone through it again with this project in certainly unusual circumstances, perhaps that has maybe changed your perspective a little bit. I think there's increasing comfort, I would say. I wouldn't say recognition of research creation because research creation has been something that's been with us for a long time. So I'm using that uh, term to kind of encompass all types of rigorous research that take on creative expression, right, such as exhibitions or podcasts. So I think there's increasing comfort with understanding the, the, the rigor or validity of research outputs that don't necessarily come in a hardcover book uh, from a, a you know, well, well-recognized press. I think it's simply um, um, the biggest benefit has to do with audience. You know, how many people are going to read that book? versus how many people can engage with an exhibition or a podcast. And not only that, uh, audience expanded in terms of in terms of such range, right? When you think about the, the audience for a book versus the audience uh, who might e- engage with a, a podcast. And here, I, right now, I'm just thinking particularly about children and youth as well, because one of the exciting things happening with the exhibition is um, that the museum is doing programming, uh, working in the London region with the school board. Uh, So it's certainly something that goes beyond the audience that Kirsty and I are engaging with ourselves. But I think that kind of speaks to what such projects can bring. And Kirsty, from your perspective, do do you have any sort of thoughts on on this type of production versus uh, any or any sort of other ones, and maybe the addition of the podcast, the audio? Like, it just there's so many layers to what this project is. So, moving forward in your career, how has this maybe influenced how you're going to proceed doing research and presenting that research to audiences? I feel like they're all valid. I feel like it's. Um... I mean, I love a good monograph. I love that you can do things like use your footnote to show your research and you can demonstrate like such a kind of depth in terms of the research that you've done in a monograph. A curatorial undertaking, like you do have to hone it down. You have to really get at the point that you want to make and to make that as clear as possible. And a podcast, um, again, is different. It's about how do you make a story that is orally accessible. And then we also did a catalog for the exhibition. And that's a bit more like a monograph. But again, it's aimed at a a different audience. So it's aimed much more at uh, the general public than an academic audience. So I guess the one thing I would say is that, well, I've been curating for quite a long time now. And I do feel that curating has impacted my academic writing in making it 
a little bit more creative in terms of like the sources I might use or the ways I might write or the ways that I'm thinking about audience. But I still think they're all they're all equally valid. They're all just more ways of telling and sharing the kinds of knowledges that we want to share. I just wanted to pick up on the catalog because, of course, we should have said as well, there's going to be a catalog produced. And so there'll be more of the conventional curatorial essay that Kirsty and I co-authored. And the catalog also includes a text by our historian Eva Diaz. It's based in the States. And the third component, which I think is perhaps a little more unusual, is we did an interview with novelist Carrie Sakamoto, who's based in Toronto. And she wrote a novel, Floating City, in which she engages with Buckminster Fuller in the narrative, uh, specifically around Fuller's work in Toronto, to which he proposed um, in some some urban urban design changes. So I think this idea that the catalog is also not a monograph, right? It allows us to bring in different voices, to have different formats, um, and also to think a bit more broadly about engagement with Fuller in the contemporary moment. Um, that's something that's yet another facet of the project. Right. So yeah, just so many different ways to tell the story and to, for it to engage people with it. And we certainly encourage everybody to check it out uh, in all of its forms. So again, from Remote Stars. So if people want to check it out, what are the dates that the exhibition is running and where can they find the podcast? So the exhibition is running. It's open now. It opened on March 5th and it's at Museum London until May 15th. And the podcast can be found on Spreaker. Uh, so if you search from remote stars, you will find the podcast on Spreaker and we hope everyone can check it out. Yeah. And uh, certainly check the show notes uh, below. We'll link to everything. Uh, so certainly encourage you to check it out. And is there a timeline on the catalog and when that, uh, what, what are we looking at there? Should be forthcoming this spring. We're hoping it might be out by the end of the show's run. Uh, so yeah, that's fingers crossed. All right. So if you're listening to this a little later in the spring or in the summer, again, check the show notes uh, and we'll update uh, the notes once uh, everything is out there, a link to everything. So uh, thank you so much. This is great. Uh, Sarah E.K. Smith, Kirsty Robertson, thank you so much for the time and congratulations on the exhibit podcast and et cetera. Thanks, Sean. So much. So there you have it, my chat with Sarah E.K. Smith and Kirsty Robertson. I thank them for their time. And again, the project is From Remote Stars. And if you are in London, Ontario or Southwestern Ontario and you want to check out the exhibition, it is running until May the 15th at Museum London. So you have just over a month left to check it out in person. If you cannot get there, then do check out the podcast a three-part miniseries, The Remote Stars Park podcast. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, we will link to everything in the show notes. If you check it out, I, I think you will enjoy it. So that will do it for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever it is you get your podcast, do likes, ratings, comments, all that stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. We've got to beat those algorithms. And of course, you can also head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are available there under the podcast tab. We had Daniel Ross last week, Bethany Kilcrease before then, some really good stuff and some fun stuff coming up that we have already recorded that I'm very excited to share with you. So do check all that good stuff out. And of course, all the written material that is available on the site. 
And as always, if you want to let me know what you would like to hear on the show, I can be found at historyslam at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that'll do it for this week. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.